When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Did you know? Acclaim acquired the license to make South Park games before the first season of the show had even finished airing. Because the show was unproven at this point, the company acquired the license for a very small sum of money. The show quickly became popular, and by March 1998, Acclaim decided to capitalize on the show's success. One of the first publications to talk about the upcoming South Park games was CNET's GameCenter.com. GameCenter reported on South Park for the Nintendo 64, which eventually released, as well as two other games that were cancelled. The first game was South Park for the Game Boy, and the other was a point-and-click adventure game titled A Week in South Park. A Week in South Park was planned to release for the PlayStation and PC, specifically so it could use CD-quality music and voice acting. It was being developed by Dreamforge Entertainment, who had previously made the award-winning point-and-click title Sanitarium. The game was reportedly puzzle-heavy, and focused on using Cartman, Stan, Kyle, and Kenny cooperatively to solve problems. The game would have emulated the show's art style, and have over 40 hours of gameplay across seven episodes. A Week in South Park was apparently 15 percent finished during the Game Center report, but it was never mentioned again. One of Acclaim's biggest problems starting out was that they wanted their first South Park game ready for Christmas 1998, which meant South Park for the N64 had to be ready for printing in just half a year. Due to the heavy time constraints, developers couldn't create a new engine for the project, and needed to use whatever they had at the time. The only viable engine they had was the Turok engine, which would also dictate the game's genre as a first-person shooter. Only Season 1 of the show was finished during this period, which limited what the team could reference. Season 1 included the episode Volcano, where Stan's Uncle Jimbo takes the boys hunting. This was the team's starting point to brainstorm ideas. They decided to make a proof of concept by creating a fast Quake mod with custom art so that they could get approval from Comedy Central. The team recorded a video of themselves as the four main boys, running around the playground and football field outside South Park Elementary, attacking each other with Quake weaponry and gore. They sent the video to Comedy Central expecting swift approval. However, between the time the video was sent and received, a school in Arkansas was attacked. Lead artist Peyton Duncan told Did You Know Gaming, Needless to say, the idea of Eric, Stan, Kyle, and Kenny jibbing each other on the playground had a completely different reaction at that point than what we originally intended. Understandably, Comedy Central did not approve the proof of concept. In the aftermath, 
The team scrambled to come up with a way to salvage the project. They came up with the idea of substituting firearms for mischievous gadgets and toys that the boys could hit each other with. Comedy Central and South Park creators Matt Stone and Trey Parker apparently loved the team's idea and gave them approval for the concept. Once the game was approved for full development, the team were briefed that production would be constant overtime and effectively six entire months of crunch. Every member of the team knew the stakes and agreed to stay. Some parts of the game were under incredible constraints, with musician Darren Mitchell finishing his score for the title in just three weeks. Lead designer and project manager Neil Glancy would fly constantly between the development studio in Austin, Texas, Comedy Central in New York, and Matt and Trey in Los Angeles to get feedback on the game. According to Glancy, Matt and Trey were fairly involved with the game's development, giving feedback and contributing ideas as well as their voices to the game. However, Matt and Trey have insisted they had little to do with the production of any South Park games before The Stick of Truth. This could be an effort to distance themselves from the product, influenced by their negative experience with South Park games as a whole. This theory is backed up by comments made by Trey Parker at the PlayStation 2 premiere that seemed to specifically lampoon South Park Rally. Parker said, It's been really hard. We have no control over it, you know? And they just put these games out and it's like racing cars and all this stuff. And we're just like, that's stupid, you know? That said, Matt and Trey have criticized the original South Park game's liberal use of turkeys in their DVD commentary of the episode Starvin' Marvin. The original South Park game was planned to have multiplayer modes such as Capture the Flag, Grudge Match, Kick the Baby, and Deathmatch. But the final game only ended up having Deathmatch. Another feature that was cut from multiplayer was a third-person camera, which was intended to let players see more of their own character. Interestingly, the game was originally going to include the character Scuzzlebutt from the Volcano episode of the show. Acclaim couldn't implement the character, however, due to the legal issues of his leg being American actor Patrick Duffy. The game also originally went by the title South Park Deeply Impacted, a name that was chosen to give an indication of the game's story and because it sounded naughty. Although the game had a troubled development, it was completed on time. Because of the strict time constraints of production, Acclaim air freighted the N64 cartridges in from Asia so that they'd be on store shelves in time for Christmas. This was expensive and unusual at the time, with most games being shipped by sea. An advertisement in Nintendo Power issue 114 reiterated that South Park would still be releasing for the Game Boy as well as the N64. Later in the same issue, Nintendo Power shared the only public screenshot of the game known to exist. The title was being developed at the same time as the N64 game by a different team, but was scrapped. As stated by Unseen64, the game was apparently canned due to Matt and Trey's beliefs about the Game Boy brand. The duo thought the Game Boy was heavily geared towards children, and that South Park wasn't a good fit for the platform due to its adult nature. Although the game was cancelled and seemed to be gone forever, a ROM dump of South Park was published online in August 2018 at the Lost Media Wiki. The game has different story elements to the N64 title, and its gameplay takes the form of a puzzle platformer. Though it never saw commercial release, the game lived on in other ways. It appears to have been repurposed into both the new adventures of Mary-Kate and Ashley in North America and Maya the Bee and her friends in Europe. The similarities between these two games are clear, but Maya the Bee in particular has a strong connection to the Game Boy prototype. Not only are all the passwords for levels the same in both games, but Maya the Bee even has leftover sprites of Kenny, Cartman, Kyle, and Stan in its data. Funnily enough, Maya the Bee was then repurposed into another Game Boy Mary-Kate and Ashley game a year later.
Although the original South Park game had received mixed reviews, the first South Park game to be outright panned was South Park Rally. The game was developed by Tantalus Media, who'd made a name for themselves working on a handful of noteworthy ports for the Sega Saturn. However, it seems that single-handedly developing the Nintendo 64, PlayStation 1, and PC versions of Rally in just seven months stretched the studio too thin. The failure of Rally hit Tantalus hard, and the studio would have to constantly work on small projects to keep themselves afloat. Tantalus's luck would eventually change as they went on to develop Twilight Princess HD for the Wii U and help port Sonic Mania to the Nintendo Switch. Although Rally had a short development period, it has a surprising amount of cut content. All versions of the game reference unused characters. The N64 version mentions Miss Crabtree, the PlayStation game also references Chicken Lover, and the Dreamcast game mentions both characters as well as a clown. Through some modifications, all three of these characters are actually playable in the game's PC release, and even have some voice files attached to them. Between all versions, several unused items are also mentioned, including Fat Abbott, a football, the Triangle of Zinthar, Santa, and Ike Brofloski. Kenny's dad was also planned to drive around in a roadkill-stained truck, but this seems to have been a stage hazard cut early in development. The initial run of South Park games clearly disappointed Matt and Trey, and soured the idea of creating South Park games for them. Up until the release of the Stick of Truth, the South Park license was barely touched at all after Rally. However, this could have been very different. After a claim went out of business, Ubisoft picked up the license to make South Park games. They soon began looking for a development studio that could put together a prototype and found BuzzMonkey Software. BuzzMonkey had shown test demos to Ubisoft in the past, who were impressed with BuzzMonkey's technical expertise. Ubisoft gave the team approval to start development on an open-world South Park game inspired by The Simpsons Hit and Run. The team wanted it to be more of an open-world adventure game, however, with less of a focus on vehicular missions than Hit and Run. It would have focused on puzzle-solving and interactive gags that were scattered across the map. Development started in December 2004, around the same time as Season 8 of the show was wrapping up. The game was being developed for the PlayStation 2, but was also being made for Xbox, with a GameCube version planned in the future. Although the game had voice samples, Matt and Trey didn't contribute any of them, and the duo were barely aware of the game's development. Cartman, Stan, Kyle, and Kenny were all planned to be playable, as well as Chef, Randy Marsh, Gerald Brofloski, Mr. Slave, and Towley. Towards the end of development, the team experimented with having the four main boys in play at the same time, with the player directly controlling one of them and being able to switch to another one on the fly. Split-screen multiplayer modes were also planned and partially implemented, but the focus was on the single player during production. As the game started to come together, it became apparent that it was trying to do too much. Game developer Marshall Gores, who actually worked on the original N64 South Park game, was brought in to help refocus the project. The team tried to get things back on schedule, but less than a month later, the project was cancelled after 10 months of development. As well as a lack of focus, the project may have been cancelled due to the actions of one of the producers. Gores told VentureBeat, I think ultimately the publisher really didn't know what they wanted it to be, and we kind of suffered from having an overactive, over-involved producer. He used to call people late at night and bug them about things and was constantly coming up with new brainstorms. I think he was trying to please several masters. Did you know, in SpongeBob SquarePants Battle for Bikini Bottom, the attack of the tubalit robot enemies changes when the game is played on specific holidays. On New Year's Day, they shoot rainbow-colored flames. 
On St. Patrick's Day, the fire is green. On April Fool's Day, the color is pink. On July 4th, the American Independence Day, they're red, white, and blue. And on Halloween, the flames are orange. Another interesting secret can be found in the Goolagoon level. One of the sandcastle sculptures at the edge of the level is a reference to a game console from the past. It's in the shape of an Atari 2600 controller. Battle for Bikini Bottom was created using the base of a previous game by developer Heavy Iron Studios, Scooby-Doo, Night of a Hundred Frights. The Xbox version of Battle for Bikini Bottom even has the intro animation of Scooby-Doo left over in the game files. By searching through these hidden files, fans have also discovered a lot of content that was removed before the game was released. The robot SpongeBob boss has an unused phase where it fights Patrick using the anchor arms from one of the cutscenes. It was partially programmed and would have been defeated by Patrick throwing debris at the targets on its arms. It's possible SpongeBob himself was planned to use the anchor arms too. An unused texture called Muscle Arms can be found in the game's files, and it is attributed to SpongeBob in the file name. The Smelly Sunday from the season to episode Something Smells was originally planned to be a power-up as well. It's possible to hack the effects of the Sunday back into the game, and it allows SpongeBob and Patrick to break stone tikis with their regular attack. The game's data also contains an unfinished dream sequence for Patrick in SpongeBob's dream level. It's based on candy and food, and it has a few early assets like the tikis that differ from those in the final game. An entire robot boss fight was also cut from the game. Like Sandy, Patrick, and SpongeBob, Squidward was also going to have his own robot boss. Concept art of the boss fight can be found in the movie theater, and it appears as though SpongeBob would have fought the robot by pressing switches and dropping rocks on it. There are unused audio files relating to all boss characters buried in the data, but there are no references to Robot Squidward, which suggests it was cut early in development. The Game Boy Advance version of the game still includes the Robot Squidward boss fight in the final version. The SpongeBob SquarePants movie game has many interesting secrets as well. In the level Welcome to Planktopolis Minions, Heavy Iron Studios hid their best records for the time trial levels in a secret spot. A hidden alcove can be reached by heading to a high ledge that overlooks a lava pit across from two large plankton statues. Falling off the ledge next to the wall will lead players to a hidden spot where after a few moments a window will pop up displaying the time trial records. The developers included another reference to their studio in the Shell City Dead Ahead level. A license plate can be found among the piles of garbage that reads HVYIRN, an abbreviation of Heavy Iron. Another interesting fact about the game has to do with Patrick's underwear. Even though it's never seen in-game, fans have discovered the model for Patrick is clothed with fully textured Goofy Goober Tidy Whities under his shorts. Later in the game, when Spongebob and Patrick arrive on the beach and meet David Hasselhoff like they do in the movie, he's never actually referred to by name. This is likely because the publisher THQ lacked the licensing rights to use his name and likeness. Instead, the character just vaguely resembles David Hasselhoff. I'm not a lifeguard, but I play one on TV. The line, I'm not a lifeguard, but I play one on TV, references Hasselhoff's role as a lifeguard on the TV drama Baywatch. The SpongeBob SquarePants movie game for PC used a different workaround for the licensing issues. Rather than referring to Hasselhoff's character as a lifeguard, he is instead treated as a mythical beast, and his name is censored with a dolphin noise. <laughs> Unlike the console versions, the PC version of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie game is a point-and-click adventure, and it also contains references to PC games from the past. During the fifth chapter, when SpongeBob tries to leave the bounds of the level and enter areas blocked by fog, he says, It's too foggy to see! I could get eaten by a Gru! 
This is a reference to Zork, the classic 1980 text-based adventure game. In Zork, if players tried to explore dark areas without a source of light, the game would warn, it's pitch black, you are likely to be eaten by a group. The SpongeBob SquarePants movie game was briefly available for the PlayStation 3 as a digital download under the PS2 Classics line. Unfortunately, this port was rushed and sloppy. The resolution was stuck on stretched, meaning players had to manually set the resolution every time they played. The audio and video would become desynchronized during cutscenes with delays of over a second between the animations and sound. You have got to try, got to try this new dot room game. And there was noticeable input lag, which caused problems during platforming and combat. The game was pulled off the PlayStation Store relatively soon after being released without an official explanation, but most gamers assumed it was due to the technical issues. SpongeBob SquarePants' first appearance in a major video game wasn't a game of his own, but in a kart racer called Nicktoons Racing. It was first released for the Game Boy Color, but subsequent versions came out for the Game Boy Advance and the original PlayStation. There was even a full-sized arcade version, complete with a chair in the shade of Nickelodeon Orange. Speaking of ensemble-style games, SpongeBob was cited by Super Smash Bros. creator Masahiro Sakurai to be a very popular request for a new playable fighter. Unfortunately, Sakurai shot down any hopes of the yellow sponge appearing in Nintendo's Brawler. In an interview, Sakurai mentioned the massive support for SpongeBob SpongeBob, but along with Goku from Dragon Ball, he said these multimedia characters are impossible to implement. The game SpongeBob SquarePants Creature from the Krusty Krab had a feature that was prevented from being added because of guidelines from the licensor. Andrew Oliver of Blitz Games had originally planned for the Wii version to have shooter-style segments that use the Wii remote like a gun. Ultimately, the developers decided against it. Oliver explained, It's a cartoon license and Nickelodeon were uncomfortable with shooting. It's not that we could couldn't do it, but it added risk if we went down that route and were told it couldn't go in. When you're aiming for a launch title, you don't need to confront obvious approval work. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. One SpongeBob SquarePants game was so flawed that it may have led to the closure of the studio that created it. SpongeBob SquarePants Revenge of the Flying Dutchman, developed by Big Sky Interactive, had generally poor reviews all around, but the PlayStation 2 version was particularly problematic. The game frequently froze on loading screens between different areas, and it caused players to actually lose their save files. The poor quality and bugs may have been due to internal problems the studio faced during development. Big Sky Interactive was originally the American branch of a French company called Callisto Entertainment. While the studio was in the middle of creating another game based on a Nickelodeon franchise, Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, their French parent company filed for bankruptcy. Having all the resources available to continue the operation on their own, the American branch split and became Big Sky Interactive. Soon after that, Big Sky heard that Nickelodeon was looking for a developer to bring SpongeBob to the PS2 and GameCube. Many members of Big Sky were huge fans of 
of SpongeBob, and the studio needed work, so they created a demo using the code from Jimmy Neutron. In an interview at E3 2002, Big Sky Interactive co-founder Matt Scabilia explained, A handful of people, mostly artists, took the technology we'd been working on and created a full working level of SpongeBob in two weeks, with gameplay, platforms, animations, a collection of items, and a working HUD. While the competition may have had a design doc or some models, we had a full playable demo working on the target platform. They landed the contract and developed the game, but unfortunately, Revenge of the Flying Dutchman sold very poorly after the negative reception. The game was the last project by Big Sky Interactive, and Nickelodeon partnered with Heavy Iron Studios for future SpongeBob projects. Did you know? The Simpsons Hit and Run was originally conceived as a direct sequel to Simpsons Road Rage. Road Rage was an homage to Sega's arcade game Crazy Taxi. Sega thought the game was more than an homage, however, and filed a lawsuit against Fox Interactive, Electronic Arts, and Radical Entertainment. When the time came to make a sequel to Road Rage, developers looked for inspiration in another popular game of the era, Grand Theft Auto 3. Associate producer on Hit and Run, Tim Ramage, told Did You Know Gaming, Grand Theft Auto 3 had just come out on console, and everyone was blown away by how deep and immersive that game was. The Simpsons universe was ripe for an expanded, explorative experience, driven by a deeper story and more character interaction. Since Radical had built the foundation of a decent driving game engine with Road Rage, GTA provided a blueprint for expanding the world and creating what would become Simpsons Hit and Run. One of the biggest similarities between GTA 3 and Simpsons Hit and Run was the amount of vehicles the players could commandeer. There are over 70 vehicles throughout the seven levels of the game. Hidden deep within the files of the game itself, users and modders have found additional unused vehicles like an ice cream truck, a blank blue van, and unusually an Audi TT. During a brainstorming session early in the game's development, someone came up with the idea of making the game open world. Executive producer of Hit and Run and Road Rage, John Meliquire, explained, During the meeting, someone said, Why can't we get out of the car and walk around Springfield? Though I don't remember who said it, I do remember looking around the room and seeing everybody's face with the look of, I wish I said that. We spent the next several hours discussing how could we do this with the current engine, and what types of game could we do if we decided to go down this path. When the ability to kick other characters was added to the game, many of the game's creators and playtesters tried it out by having Homer kick Marge. It was such a ridiculous thing to do in the context of the show that everybody seemed drawn to it. They made a rule though, no one could make Homer kick Marge in front of Matt Groening. But as John Meliquire explained, when Matt Groening first tried out the new kicking ability, the first thing he did was beat the crap out of Marge. Literally kicked her down the street from their house to the Quickie Mart. Though the makers of the game knew they had something special with Hit and Run, they assumed the game would receive lower ratings from critics. As Tim Ramage puts it, the team also figured that Hit and Run, regardless of the depth of content and how good the game was, would automatically be docked 1-2 to two points by reviewers because of the franchise's less than stellar history with games. For the game's release outside the United States, it received several edits due to objectionable content. Some examples are a clip of Apu saying, Hey, move it, Whitey! And one clip from the buzzer of the legitimate businessman social club that said, Don't come in here. We're making uh, sausage. Bad sausages. Hit and Run has many cheats, including ways to bring up different character models and make changes to the way your car controls. By using some of these cheats, players have managed to access restricted areas of the game, uncovering unused game assets and strange glitches. 
Players can find many misplaced objects by using an unlock all car cheat to get the RC car and a honk to jump cheat to get out of bounds. Levels 1, 4, and 7 you can see variations of the Simpsons house in the middle of nowhere. This is presumably where the house is naturally located and the players would teleport to it. The house has parts missing because the fixed camera limits what the player can see and the missing parts are unnecessary. Characters can also be seen walking around in the out of bounds area such as Lisa and Apu. Level 1 has two paintings in the Simpsons style based on the work American Gothic. One idea is that they were planned for inside the Stonecutter's tunnel. In the final game, Simpsons-styled paintings of Mozart and the Mona Lisa can be seen in the tunnel instead. Users poking around the game's files have found tracks that refer to a land of chalk. One of these tracks is in the mission There's Something About Monty. Though we never see a land of chocolate in Hit and Run, there is a land of chocolate level in the Simpsons game. Interestingly, parts of the Hit and Run track are played in the land of chocolate, despite the Simpsons game releasing four years after Hit and Run and having a different developer and publisher. This could mean that Hit and Run was planned to have a land of chocolate stage or mission as well. There are many Easter eggs in the game. If your system's internal clock is set to either October 31st, the last Thursday of November, or December 25th, the game's main menu will feature a Halloween, Thanksgiving, or Christmas theme. The characters in the game also frequently break the fourth wall, acknowledging that they're in a game. When Homer loses, he shouts, Oh, this video game sucks! This line was later referenced in Crash Tag Team Racing, also made by Radical Entertainment. The line can be heard from Pasadena Opossum after her cart gets destroyed. This game sucks! The Simpsons Hit and Run was voiced by the original cast of The Simpsons TV show, and the writers were heavily involved in the game's story. The voice actors recorded almost an entire season's worth of voice work for the game. Each actor voiced over 700 lines, and the writers were on hand to go over every plot point the creators came up with. At times, the creators would even get rewrites from the show's writing staff. John Mellacquire told us, The Simpsons TV team is always involved. They are from the start. They have to be. They approved everything, so for us, it was about getting Gracie Films and Matt on board. We knew we had achieved what we set out to. Then, to hear Matt Groening play the game and laugh, we knew we did right by the show as well. There's a strong modding community for Hit and Run, with multiple mods being published in 2015. The biggest modding project is by Donut Team, which is a complete reworking of the game. It has new levels, new playable characters, and new missions. Did you know? Insomniac Games were presented with the opportunity to work alongside Marvel, but on the condition that they treat the project like a first-party PlayStation title. This offer was brought up by Sony's Connie Booth, a longtime executive producer and friend of the studio who'd been pitching to partner up with Marvel for quite some time. Insomniac CEO Ted Price told Game Informer, When Connie approached us with that opportunity, I started asking around here and in Insomniac and sent to various people, what do you think? We never worked on somebody else's IP before, is this something that would interest you? I expected people to say, eh, that's not what we do. But the reaction was, are you kidding? Of course we want to work with Marvel. Instead of forcing Insomniac to make a game for a specific IP, Marvel actually asked the studio which franchise they'd most want to work with. The studio almost instantly chose Spider-Man. Price said that one of the reasons was, One of our favorite aspects of game making is to inject humor into our games, and what's great about Spider-Man and Peter Parker is that they both have a great sense of humor. This element of humor can also be seen with the studio's last game, Sunset Overdrive. Interestingly, Spider-Man was actually built on the Sunset Overdrive game engine, albeit slightly modified. 
When drafting up the game's story, Insomniac didn't want to adapt a specific Spider-Man tale and instead chose to make their own. Co-writer Christos Gage said, We're doing our own thing. We don't have to worry about all the other stuff. Let's just do the best, most iconic Spider-Man story we can do. Christos went on to say that making their own story during development was liberating, as licensed games are usually tied to external projects and have to be linked to one another. The writing staff worked closely with Marvel's executive creative director Bill Roseman on the game's overall story and themes. Roseman suggested that the best Spider-Man stories revolved around the conflict between the life of Peter Parker and his alter ego. Thus, the writing team decided to set the game in Peter's turbulent early 20s. Lead writer John Paquette estimated that the team wrote upwards of 800,000 words for the game's script. However, just around half of that made it into the final game, as the team ruthlessly cut out any story element they felt wasn't working. Still, Paquette claims that the game's finalized script is equivalent to a 3,333-page novel. One aspect of the game's lengthy script can be attributed to the numerous one-liners the writers had to come up with. Gage compared writing for the game to his experience with comic books, saying, There are infinitely more one-liners. For example, there's a bit where Spider-Man jumps into a fight between two other factions that are his enemies, and they're fighting each other, and he says something to the effect of, Guys, I know how we can settle this. Dance off. Imagine coming up with 1,000 of those. However, for all that the writing team put into the game, Paquette lamented that no matter how hard he tried, Roseman absolutely refused to let Mary Jane or Spider-Man say the words BALLS under any circumstance, saying, For some reason, Bill always said, No, no, take that out. Insomniac's art team spent a great deal of effort rationalizing the design of their original Spidey suit. Art director Jacinda Chu revealed that the blue areas of the suit are supposed to give Spider-Man the most flexibility, featuring paneling similar to modern athletic sports gear. Meanwhile, the red areas are made of a thicker material for more reinforcement, and are a place where Spider-Man is most likely to get hit or scrape against buildings. Finally, the white on his gauntlets, feet, and chest is actually a flexible carbon fiber, perfect for landing and blocking blows in a fight. Speaking of combat, Insomniac didn't want the game to be just a simple brawler, and aimed to create a combat system that was more movement and ability driven, that didn't simply rely on combos. Moreover, the team tried to capture Spider-Man's improvisational style by encouraging players to experiment with his capabilities as well as the environment. Creative director Brian Intahar mentioned that the focus on combat experimentation ultimately made the game feel even more like a sandbox. Still, the team hoped the design philosophy and the game's progression system would allow players to feel like a hero right away, but would eventually go on to be an even greater one as they master the game, hence the game's tagline, Be Greater. Voice actor Yuri Lowenthal, known for such roles as Ben Tennyson from Ben 10 and Sasuke Uchiha of Naruto, didn't believe he'd be chosen to voice Spider-Man after experiencing some mild eternal resistance at Insomniac. Lowenthal explained in an interview, Everyone was like, well, he's done other stuff for us and we can't have him do Spider-Man because he just did the lead of Sunset Overdrive, and that's the guy he does and that's not Spider-Man. 
However, John Paquette defended the choice to have Lowenthal audition for the role by saying they wouldn't have brought him in if they didn't think he could do the job. Paquette's sentiments weren't misplaced either, as this wasn't Lowenthal's first time voicing Spidey. In fact, he'd been cast as the web-slinger in games such as Marvel Pinball, Marvel Superhero Squad Online, Spider-Man Unlimited, and the mobile version of The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Nevertheless, Lowenthal didn't get his hopes up, assuming he'd get turned down in favor of somebody else. He was thrilled when he got the role, and has since called it his favorite game to work on since voicing the Prince in The Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. The team's attention to detail can be seen in the voice acting. Multiple recordings were made for Spider-Man's dialogue, one in a regular tone of voice, and one for when he's exerting himself while web-slinging. You said a mouthful, Doc. Take care. You said a mouthful, Doc. Take care. Although Insomniac Spider-Man presents an incredibly well-realized world, it did pull much of its foundations from early 3D Spider-Man games. Spider-Man on the PlayStation was developed by Neversoft and was made using the Tony Hawk Pro Skater engine. The game seems to acknowledge this as it contains billboards advertising Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. If Spider-Man swings by one of these signs, he'll say, Tony Hawk, hey, I skated with that guy. Besides promoting Pro Skater 2, which came out a month after Spider-Man, this was also a nod to Spidey being a secret playable character in Tony Hawk 2. Vicarious Visions, Spider-Man 2 Enter Electro was a direct sequel to Neversoft's original title and arguably had a more interesting development period. Enter Electro was originally planned to release on September 18, 2001, just a week after the World Trade Center terrorist attacks of September 11th. The final sequence of the game originally took place on two towers which were implied to be the World Trade Center buildings, which would have certainly raised a few eyebrows. Due to this, the game's publisher Activision announced they'd be delaying the game a whole month out of respect for the 9-11 victims and their loved ones. However, the game was already completed before this announcement was made, and copies of the title leaked into circulation. This made it possible to compare the original and post-9-11 versions of the game. Four of the game's levels were renamed, with the most notable change of the top of the world being renamed to the best laid plans. This is the level that originally featured the two towers, but in the final game they were melded into one by a bridge. The game's end and several other references to the towers were also changed. The multi-platform Spider-Man title based on the first movie, which was released in 2002, also had a few changes during and after production. Originally, actor Josh Keaton was brought in to voice the old webhead early in the game's life. However, Activision managed to get Tobey Maguire to sign on to the project a bit later. They then made the choice to put Toby front and center in the lead role, unfortunately replacing Keaton. It's not all bad, as they did make use of Keaton's talents elsewhere, as he was cast as Harry Osborn and was featured in the game's extensive New Game Plus mode where he controlled the Green Goblin. Keaton would then go on to voice Spider-Man in both the Spectacular Spider-Man TV series, Ultimate Spider-Man in Shattered Dimensions, and also played Electro in Spider-Man for the PS4. If the player enters the cheat code Girl Next Door, they can play as Mary Jane Watson. At the end of the game, where Spider-Man and Mary Jane usually kiss, Mary Jane will kiss herself. Having what is perceived as a lesbian kiss in an E-rated game caused a mild controversy, and Activision re-released the game without the 
cheat code. This isn't the only cheat-related secret in Spider-Man games. If the player enters Ladneck in the 2000 Spider-Man game on PS1, they'll unlock Debug Mode. This is a reference to one of the game's main programmers, Kendall Harrison. Not only that, but if the player enters an incorrect phrase into the cheat menu, it will just simply reset. However, if you were to input a swear word as a cheat, Spider-Man will appear and just change it into something nice like flower, puppy, or spice. This is also true for the game's sequel Enter Electro. Both these early PlayStation 1 games also had a special what-if mode that can only be accessed via cheats. This mode offers alternative takes of what could have been and features additional content. If the player enters this mode and goes into the waterfront warehouse level, they can find one of many easter eggs. In a crate near the start of the level, it's possible to find the Ark of the Covenant, a historical relic which is a central plot device in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. More interesting references can be found in the 2004 Spider-Man 2 game. When the player has a showdown with Mysterio in a burning theater, about three minutes into the mission, the fishbowl-headed villain will utter which is the magical phrase Bruce Campbell's character Ash uses in Army of Darkness, another Sam Raimi movie. Later on in the same mission, a cutscene will trigger where Mysterio is leaving the theater and he'll say, You have no chance to survive. Make your time. This is a reference, of course, to the infamously bad English localization of the game Zero Ring, where the main villain, Katz, states, All your base are belong to us, you have no chance to survive, make your time. The Easter eggs and references continue on in Spider-Man for the PS4, as Insomniac went out of their way to stuff as many of them into the game as they could. For example, references to the Marvel Cinematic Universe can be found littered throughout New York City, such as Avengers Tower, located in the Upper East Side, Doctor Strange's Sanctum Santorum in Greenwich Village, Jessica Jones's Alias Investigations, and the Murdoch and Nelson Law Firm in Hell's Kitchen, a statue of Lockjaw from Inhumans in the Financial District, and many more. Although far more subtle, there are also references to even older Marvel movies as well. At one point in the game, Spider-Man tries to stop a runaway subway train, just like Tobey Maguire did in 2004's Spider-Man 2. However, when his web line snaps, Spidey quips, That totally worked last time! Directly referring to the iconic scene from Sam Raimi's movie. Anime and gaming seem to go practically hand in hand. The animated stylings of anime appear to translate well from clean, hand-drawn artwork to the crisp 2D sprites of video games. Many of the stories featured in video games have also been influenced by Japanese culture, and since Japan is the home of anime and manga, the two mediums often have overlapping tropes. It's like one of my Japanese animes. Both mediums also became popular in the West around the same time, which is no doubt due to their similarities and ties to Japanese culture. We're starting off with our dive into anime games with the popular 90s and 2000s series Yu-Gi-Oh! This franchise had over a dozen games on just the Game Boy Advance alone, so we'll just jump right into the middle of the system's offerings with a game whose name is almost comically long, Yu-Gi-Oh!'s Seven Trials to Glory World Championship Tournament 2005. In the game's Shadow World, there is an area where a duelist can be found hiding inside a cardboard box. If the player talks to them, they'll say, I don't know why I'm revealing this, but I'm a secret spy. I was hired by an organization which shall remain nameless in order to study this Shadow World. 
It's believed to be a reference to Solid Snake from Konami's Metal Gear series. Not only does the character hide in a box while doing espionage like Snake and work for a secret organization, but many Yu-Gi-Oh games, Seven Trials to Glory included, were made by Konami, strengthening this connection. Moving on to an incredibly well-respected manga and anime series which has also seen its fair share of video games, let's talk about Lupin the Third. Although most Lupin games never leave Japan, a few of the titles have traveled beyond the Isles. One example of this is Lupin the Third, Lupin is Dead, Zenigata is in Love, which also saw release in Europe. However, a very limited release in Europe, so limited in fact, that it was actually only available in a single European country. In February 2008, an entire year after the game's Japan release, the game found its way to Italy courtesy of Italian publisher 505 Games. Another Lupin game, Lupin the Third Treasure of the Sorcerer King, had a much more expansive release, but again not in Europe. The only European country the game was officially released in was once again Italy via 505 Games. Another well-respected and highly beloved anime and manga series is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which has seen several video game adaptations. When Capcom was working on an arcade fighting game based on the franchise, the team wanted to include the character of Midler as a playable character. At the time, however, the character's full appearance had never been shown officially. The character appears in the 1993 JoJo RPG on the Super Famicom as a stewardess, though not using an official design, and only two panels in the manga show the character from the waist down. This fighting game was intended to be a faithful adaptation of the original source material, or at least as close as possible. Thus, the development team decided to forego the JoJo RPG design and asked Hirohiko Araki, the manga's original author, to redesign her specifically for the game, turning her into something akin to a belly dancer with her face covered up. After the game's release, Midler would appear in the official Jojo Agogo art book, suggesting that the redesigned appearance had become part of the Jojo canon. While we're on the subject of fighting games, J-Star's Victory Versus is a crossover title featuring franchises tied to the weekly Shonen Jump manga. The game features some very prominent anime and manga series such as Naruto, One Piece, Fist of the North Star, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure and Dragon Ball. And as you might expect, it features characters and locations from these franchises, some of which have some fairly sneaky easter eggs. For example, if the player goes to the Planet Namek stage and goes to the bottom of the lake, they can find the four-star Dragon Ball underwater. This is likely a reference to a part of the Namek arc in Dragon Ball Z, where in one chapter, Vegeta throws the four-star Dragon Ball into the water for safekeeping after wiping out everyone at a Namekian village. Speaking of Dragon Ball, the franchise may have had a large impact on a certain Japanese video game company. While Sonic would eventually take over as Sega's golden boy, it was Alex Kidd that Sega used as their unofficial mascot through the 80s. Miracle World was critically acclaimed upon release, earning high praise for its tight platforming and visual likeness that gave Sega fans a Super Mario-like experience outside of Nintendo. However, despite the long-running suspicions that Alex Kidd had been deliberately positioned to rival the world's most famous plumber, theories persisted that Sega hadn't initially set out to make a Mario clone at all. Some speculate that Alex Kidd was in fact a Dragon Ball tie-in that had to be hastily reworked due to licensing conflicts. Miracle World designer Kotaro Hayashida would go on to confirm this theory to John Shapiniak in February of 2018. By Hayashida's own admission, Alex's primary weapon had originally been the Nyoibo, a mystical staff used by Dragon Ball's Son Goku, 
to whom Alex Kidd bears an uncanny resemblance, a boy with monkey-like features wearing an orange gi and blue boots. The resemblance doesn't stop there. Players will find a rice ball in the end of each stage, which Alex Kidd must eat before progressing, and each loading screen features a sprite of him happily munching down between stages. When quizzed on this detail in 2002, Hayashida couldn't place where Alex's love of onigiri came from, but given that there are countless scenes of Goku scoffing rice balls in a similar manner in Dragon Ball, we're willing to bet we know the real answer there. In later versions of the game, these rice balls were replaced with burgers. Goku and his grandpa also use an attack called Janken several times throughout Dragon Ball. This is an attack that incorporates a game of rock-paper-scissors to first confuse the enemy, and then strikes when they least expect it. Alex Kidd's boss battles play out in a surprisingly similar fashion. Instead of dialing up mechanics of regular stages like most other games, boss challenges are boiled down to a game of rock-paper-scissors, known in Miracle World as, wait for it, Janken. Hayashida recalled playtester reactions to this design decision, the majority of which were outraged that all progress could be lost in a game of chance. Despite all the negative feedback, he still refused to scrap it. When asked what a remake of Alex Kidd would look like, Hayashida shared his wish for something more along the lines of Shaolin Soccer, particularly telling considering the influence of Dragon Ball is present through the entirety of director Stephen Chow's work. Nevertheless, despite Hayashida's clear passion for a Dragon Ball project, the license would later go to Bandai, leaving Alex Kidd and Dragon Ball fans alike to wonder what might have been if the team hadn't been forced to refocus their efforts. Did you know? According to the original manual for LEGO Island, the personalities of each main character are based on a theory about human intelligence. The theory of multiple intelligences was developed by Howard Gardner in the late 1970s and early 80s, and states that a person's IQ score is an inadequate way to measure intelligence. Gardner said different kinds of intelligence and people can excel in certain types, but not others. In LEGO Island, Mama Bricolini represents musical intelligence, which relates to understanding and performing music. Pepper Roni represents logic mathematical intelligence. Papa Bricolini represents bodily kinesthetic intelligence, which refers to people such as dancers. Nick Brick represents spatial intelligence, which is helpful with things like architecture. Laura Brick represents interpersonal intelligence, which can be seen as someone's social capability. Lastly, the Brickster represents intrapersonal intelligence, which can be seen as someone who is self-aware or introspective. Wes Jenkins, creative director at Mindscape during LEGO Island's production, built a model of the game's island out of LEGO with his his wife. This was done to help Jenkins visualize the island before modeling began. He laments not taking any good pictures of it as the island was tossed out after the game was finished. The origins of LEGO Island can be traced back to 1996 when the LEGO group invested around 2 million US dollars in video game development. The group wanted to make games featuring LEGO supposedly because they viewed the games industry as a rising threat to the toy market. LEGO Island was announced with the title LEGO Town, which referenced the town line of LEGO toys sold between 1978 and 1996. LEGO Island had a few sour moments during production. Jenkins notes that the game's soundtrack was originally planned to be much more ambitious, with plans to feature music by Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo, The Doors keyboardist Ray Manzarek, and guitarist Dwayne Eddy. However, budget and administration fear squashed these plans. But by far the most unbelievable thing to occur during the development of LEGO Island happened a day before the game's release. According to Jenkins, it was standard practice 
practice for developers to receive bonuses upon a product's release as a reward for a job well done. However, Mindscape fired the entire team a day before LEGO Island released in order to avoid paying these bonuses. LEGO Island has other secrets. On the second floor of the elevator, the player can see Nick Brick swimming through an ocean. This is a nod to the cancelled LEGO Island spin-off titled Beneath the Fantasy. In an interview, Jenkins said the game was canned because of supposed political reasons and went on to say Mindscape didn't realize the potential profits of the product. Some people from some unknown places seemed less than enthusiastic and were paranoid every step of the way. At one point, there were also plans for a LEGO TV series that would have centered around the pirate Captain Click from the pirate-themed LEGO set. According to Jenkins, the pilot followed Captain Click as he came to life and stole LEGO bricks that kids left out when they went to bed. The pilot was never picked up, but there were some speculation that linked it to the LEGO Island series. Due to the large amount of unused content within LEGO Island 2, the game may have been planned to tie into this TV series. This was also hinted at by Jenkins in an email to a fan where he implied the pirate cave was a sign of things to come and would lead into the next product. LEGO Island 2 also contains a hidden room, though this one is filled with LEGO minifigures of the development team. It's possible to find this area once the game is completed by typing S Dreams at a hidden alcove behind Space Mountain, where a portal will lead to the room. The code S Dreams is a shortened version of Silicon Dreams, the name of LEGO Island 2's developers. Perhaps after the sudden firing of the development team on the first LEGO Island, the programmers on its sequel wanted to make sure they were properly credited. Wes Jenkins was worried that he wouldn't get credit for his work on the sequel. Not only did he have a smaller role in the game and worked from home, he was also recovering from heart surgery. While Jenkins was vulnerable, another employee tried to take credit for his work. Jenkins said some weird guy at the company hired his girlfriend and I passed along my presentation to her. She presented it as her own work and then told the developers not to listen to me. I was in hospital again so I could only grin and think, whatever. Other LEGO games had a more straightforward development. LEGO Racers started when high-voltage software founder Kerry Ganofsky came up with the idea of a LEGO racing game where the player could build and race their own vehicles. Pre-production on the game lasted for over a year until LEGO executives greenlit the project. During this time, the team came up with dozens of ideas for power-ups, including a flying parrot and a sticky bubblegum weapon. The amount of power-ups was cut down based on whether or not they were unique, if they used actual LEGO pieces, and how fun or rewarding they were to use. The of characters and levels were even harder to whittle down as the team had a giant library of LEGO themes to choose from. Documents and figures of practically every LEGO system character and model ever made were sent to high voltage for research. The team eventually settled on using four of the LEGO system themes, Castle, Space, Adventurers, and Pirates. This gave them a wide range of areas and characters to choose from. As well as selecting their favorite characters from the system themes, the team also created two original characters specifically for LEGO racers. The Rocket Racer and Veronica Voltage. Other racing games allowed players to tweak the stats of cars, but the team wanted players to build their own LEGO cars and do so with as much freedom as possible. They also wanted 3D car building to be simple and have brick placement and brick types affect car handling. This would mean cars that looked light or heavy would feel different on the track and give a visual indication of how they'd handle. The car bricks were chosen first by aesthetics and then analyzed to see if they'd fit the game's mechanics. Because of the massive possible combination of 
bricks, the team needed to come up with a way to optimize how the cars were rendered. Rendering each piece of a vehicle individually wouldn't be efficient, as the game would waste resources on bricks and polygons that aren't visible. To get around this, a custom mesh code was created that automatically welded the geometry of a car's bricks together once it was finished being built. This greatly reduced how many polygons would appear on screen. That said, high polygon versions of these meshes are also spawned for the menu screens and cinematics to maintain continuity throughout a playthrough. Altogether, it took over a year to finalize car building in LEGO Racers. Did you know? The Xbox version of Shrek was completed in less than a year, and according to the game's credits, the project was done over the course of 10 lucky months. The game was published by TDK Media Active and developed by DICE, who later go on to develop the Battlefield series, Mirror's Edge, and the Star Wars Battlefront games. Shrek on the Xbox was the first commercial video game to use deferred shading, a technique that would later be seen in Battlefield 1942, developed by DICE a year later. With deferred shading, light is only calculated for the pixels it actually interacts with. This means multiple lights sources can be used at a lower cost than standard shading techniques, allowing for ambient light that more accurately imitates the Shrek movies. The Shrek game was more than just a simple tie-in, it was one of the titles made to get people to buy the Xbox brand. It was featured on the Xbox demo disc, as well as in brochures, contests, and playable kiosks. Microsoft showcased the game at investor meetings and trade events to show off the power of the Xbox, and was seen as one of the console's most visually impressive titles using advanced lighting and bump mapping textures. General manager for Microsoft's game division Jay Allard had this to say about Shrek's specs. People really respond to Shrek for the Xbox. Its humor, fast-paced quirky gameplay, and cinema-like graphics make it one of the groundbreaking Xbox launch titles. Shrek is a great example of how the Xbox allows us to draw images at the same level of quality of feature films. This will completely change the way that people view video games. Despite all this, other elements of the game were received poorly, especially its gameplay. The game was a timed exclusive for the Xbox, with a GameCube port releasing the following year titled Shrek Extra large, adding new content. Contrary to the port's box art, Donkey is still not anywhere in the game. Shrek had no spoken lines in the game either, even though it features a fair bit of voice acting. In an interview with IGN, TDK producer Nick Fox talked about Shrek's development. From the start, the team worked closely with PDI slash DreamWorks crew and talked with several important figures during the creative process, including the movie's directors. The game and movie teams frequently emailed each other throughout development, and the movie team helped out in any way they could. They scheduled meetings with the film's animators to work on the game's animation, and DreamWorks even provided the team with character and world models, though some models went unused due to software incompatibility. As noted on the game's box art, it featured characters designed by comic artist Todd McFarlane, best known for his work on The Amazing Spider-Man, co-creating Venom, and making the Spawn series. There were strong talks of TDK following up with a Shrek sequel, but those plans never came to pass, as the license went to Activision starting with Shrek 2. However, according to Nick Fox, TDK originally had the Shrek license for five years, and even showed Shrek 2 as part of their E3 lineup in May 2003. TDK was acquired by Take-Two Interactive, and as a result, the Shrek rights were picked up by Activision. Though reviews of the Shrek 2 game were mixed, the popularity of the Shrek franchise proved to be great for Activision sales-wise. It, along with the Spider-Man 2 game, shipped over 5 million units combined, and at the time, made for Activision's highest first quarter revenues in the company's history. Where Spider-Man was the best-selling game of June 2004, Shrek 2 made for the best-seller, earlier in May. In the US alone, the GBA version raked in over $18 million, and $26 million on the PS2 by 2006, and combined console sales reached over 2.5 million units. 
Shrek has also dabbled in a few fighting games. Developed by the now-defunct Shaba Games, Shrek Super Slam took inspiration from many different fighters, as well as other genres like platformers and first-person shooters. It also found inspiration in films, from the Shrek series itself to Master of the Flying Guillotine and Kill Bill. Like many things Shrek-related, Super Slam became a source of internet ridicule, thanks to a group of friends making a joke that got a little out of hand. Having enjoyed competitive melee matches and Shrek memes, the group decided to combine the two after finding a copy of Super Slam lying around. They took the joke online and made a Reddit page for Super Slam. Laying dormant for over a year, Reddit user Snowball Eater flooded the page with posts about techniques and theories on the game, and others started taking notice, eventually getting the page over 1,000 followers. There's even a competitive scene for the game, including netplay tournaments and a website that keeps an up-to-date tier list for the playable characters. It's gotten to the point where people who worked on Super Slam have caught wind of the game's resurgence. One of the developers, Sylvan Dubrowski, said the Shaba team was working on an original title before Super Slam, but it was shelved by Activision. An outsourcing manager for Shaba, Paul Culp, talked about his disdain for the Shrek franchise. Culp said, I hated Shrek. Still do. I didn't give that game my best. The rest of the team could have easily phoned it in and moved on but they didn't. I don't know how much you've paid attention to the art and animation in Super Slam, but it's all pretty great, especially for the time. Personally, I drank a lot during that time, but everyone deals with it in their own way. Despite his personal thoughts, hearing that people were still playing the game and enjoying it made him very happy, and when he told the other team members who worked on Super Slam, they were just as surprised as he was. As a game developer, the goal is to give people a good time, so the best thing ever is hearing people are having fun with your game over a decade later. The PS2 version of Super Slam also has an unused file called strident.bin in its data. This file is actually a full PSP game rip of Tony Hawk's Underground 2. The game likely found its way onto the disc due to both titles being developed by Shaba Games. It's common for developers to fill empty space on a disc with what's known as a dummy file, a file with no purpose other than taking up space on a disc or cartridge. Super Slam's disc size is 1.6 gigabytes, with Tony Hawk's taking up almost half of that file size. Comparing the retail release of Underground 2 with the version on the Shrek disc, there are slight differences and file sizes, and the build found in Super Slam was compiled two days after the retail version. The Shrek franchise also has several kart racers attached to it. Interestingly, Shrek Smash and Crash Racing for the Nintendo DS has an unused track from Mario Kart 64 in its data. The unused song is the main theme from Mario Kart 64, which was one of the samples Nintendo included with the DS's developmental kit. Did you know? Star Wars Battlefront 2 was originally a multiplayer exclusive title and had a mere one year development cycle. Partway through production, however, new executives joined LucasArts. They were worried that a multiplayer only title wouldn't sell and insisted that the game have a single player campaign. When the team explained that they couldn't do this with their current budget or timetable, they were told to just quote, figure it out. Battlefront 2's director nearly had a nervous breakdown towards the end of production, but the team successfully completed both modes on time. Battlefront 2 sold well, but a sequel to the game lingered in development for years. Eventually, LucasArts approached developer Free Radical to work on the title. Free Radical's vision for Battlefront 3 was ambitious and saw players transition seamlessly from ground warfare to space battles. They struggled for two years to try to get this title working. Development took so long that the art team began designing assets for a potential Battlefront 4 before 3 was even near completion. Despite these troubles, however, LucasArts thought highly of the game. One former LucasArts employee remembered, we 
kept getting these code drops that were amazing. We thought Battlefront 3 was going to turn the industry on its head. Free Radical was meeting all of their milestones. Even LucasArts president Jim Ward would sit in these core meetings and would say things like, so this is shipping next month, right? However, Free Radical began hitting roadblocks and missing milestones in early 2008. Their design documents called for 100 player matches, but the game would slow down with just 20. The company cut the projected 100 players down to just 50, and greatly reduced the single player campaign in scope. Regardless, it became apparent to LucasArts that Free Radical wasn't going to make their projected release date for Battlefront 3. One former employee speculated, Internally, because this was right when Hayes was shipping, we were all certain that they had pulled tons of resources off Battlefront to finish up Hayes, and they wouldn't tell us what was going on. We tried to get our producers over there and they wouldn't let us into the building. The relationship just started fraying. Around this time, Daryl Rodriguez was appointed the president of LucasArts, and began pushing Free Radical even harder. This further strained the relationship between the two companies. Free Radical Audio Director Graeme Norgate stated, LucasArts hadn't paid us for six months, and were refusing to pass a milestone so we'd limp along until the money finally ran out. They knew what they were doing. Eventually, LucasArts officially cut ties with Free Radical, and their vision for Battlefront 3 was scrapped. Free Radical co-founder Steve Ellis commented that the development on the title was 99% complete, and just needed bug fixing for release. Battlefront 3 wasn't the only Star Wars game that got stuck in development purgatory. Other games included a Call of Duty-style shooter called First Assault. There were also two different attempts to continue the Jedi Knight series titled Brink of Darkness and Jedi Master. Imperial Commando was a planned sequel to Republic Commando, and there was going to be a Knights of the Old Republic 3, though no one at LucasArts remembered why it was cancelled. A game that focused on Darth Maul titled Battle of the Sith Lords was in development at Redfly Studios in 2010. The project began as a collaboration collaboration between LucasArts and Nintendo to bring an exclusive series to Nintendo systems. Redfly envisioned the game as a stealth-oriented action title in the vein of the Arkham Asylum games, and wanted to focus on Maul's origin story. This iteration never made it past the conception phase, as LucasArts wanted the game to tie in with an upcoming Maul-centered storyline in the Clone Wars animated series. Eventually, Star Wars creator George Lucas became interested in the project, and personally met with Redfly. Before the developers could even finish their pitch, however, Lucas interrupted them after noticing figurines of Maul and the extended universe character Darth Talon. One source told Game Informer, Lucas cut them off, stood up, walked over to the statues, rotated them to be facing the same direction, pushed them together, and said they're friends. He wanted these characters to be friends and to play off each other. When someone pointed out that Maul and Talon existed nearly 170 years apart from each other in the Star Wars canon, Lucas brushed the problem off and said the main character could just be a descendant or clone of Maul instead. Redfly struggled with the problem for several months, creating prototypes for the game, but LucasArts refused to sign off on any of the team's larger ideas. Eventually, the publisher flew out several members of the Redfly team to their campus in San Francisco for a boot camp on prototyping, hoping to give the project a clearer direction. Afterwards, progress on the title was made, and the two companies grew very close. There were even rumors at the Redfly offices that suggested LucasArts wanted to buy the company. However, in mid-2011, communication from LucasArts abruptly stopped. One 
one ex-Red Fly employee remembered, We didn't hear from them for two weeks. No word, nothing. And when I say no word, I mean nothing. We did manage to get some of the guys, the internal producers that were on our project on Skype, and they looked like they were kicked in the nuts. We knew what was going on, they just couldn't tell us. In June of 2011, the project was officially cancelled. No one at Red Fly was told why development ended, though several ex-staff members believe it relates to Lucas selling his company to Disney. During a Reddit AMA in October 2015, CEO and creative director of Red Fly Studio Dan Borth spoke about the cancelled mall game. He stated that Red Fly are attempting to resurrect the Darth Maul project, and are hoping to prototype a demo of the game to EA. Out of 100. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.